Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, shedding light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. This podcast is intended to be an in-depth exploration of the intersections between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And my hope is that the talks and conversations in this podcast will help support your practice and or your teaching of yin yoga and meditation. In this last installment of a four-part conversation with yin yoga master Bernie Clark, Bernie and I continue to discuss the themes from his new book, Your Spine, Your Yoga. This book, along with his other works, really need to be in every yoga teacher's library. And I'll include a link in the show notes for how you might find and get yourself a copy of Your Spine, Your Yoga. In this episode, Bernie dives into the sacroiliac joint, differentiating the joint from the broader sacroiliac complex. And he also looks at how to think about what's happening in this area in our yoga practice. In addition, Bernie also shares how his thinking about yoga and fitness have shifted as a result of his working with the spine biomechanist, Dr. Stuart McGill. As always, there's a lot of good stuff that I get to pick Bernie's brain about, and I look forward to sharing it with you today. But before starting in on the final part of this conversation, I have one small favor to ask of you. As a way to support this podcast, I humbly ask that if you find this podcast of value to your practice or teaching, that you might consider sharing an episode or a link to the podcast in either your social media channels like Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or in a blog or newsletter. This is enormously helpful to me. I have intentionally kept this podcast sponsor-free, ad-free, as I personally don't really appreciate the intrusion of advertisements when I'm enjoying a podcast myself. So for now, I'm trying to keep them out of Everyday Sublime, which means as a free podcast, I do support and back this podcast with my own sweat and tears. Now, it's a sacrifice I feel privileged to make, and all I ask of you is that if you find value in the podcast, please share it with someone else that might find it valuable too. And I thank you in advance for that sharing and support. Okay, without further ado, I once again bring you Bernie Clark. One of the the sections of your book, I mean, you you go through the lumbar vertebrae, you go through the thoracic vertebrae, you go through the cervical section uh, section of the spine, but you also spend a, a huge chunk of the book talking about the sacral complex. Right. And this is another fairly controversial. Um, or somewhat controversial area in that uh, I would say, at least in my own teaching experience, when I do the inventory of injuries, when I, when I meet, have a new group of people that I'm working with and uh, I go through, we go do the go around and people say, oh, I have, this is what I have going on, this is what I'm working with. You know, very often, more often than not, many people will say, I have either uh, sacroiliac dysfunction I have a, a loose SI joint. Um, so I have sacroiliac instability, and um, I think in in general, as a general observation in the yoga world, many teachers have a fear with those kinds of conditions 
around any practice that purports it, that it's going to stress that area, whether uh, particularly in a in a yin yoga context. So um, this is this is just context for where I'm coming to you with some questions now, um, because in your book you do you 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 lay out a, a difference between thinking about the SI joint specifically and thinking more maybe holistically or globally around what you're referring to as the sacral complex. Right. So maybe as a starting point, if you want to just spell out the two differences between those two things, or the, the difference between those two things, the sacral complex versus the SI joint, and, and what mobility or stability would mean with each, within each of those. Right. Well, as you just intimated, this is a complex area. But I think a lot of times yoga teachers use the term SI or sacroiliac in a much broader way than a, a clinician or a researcher would. The SI joint, per se, is simply the joining between the inside of the pelvis, the ilium, and the outside of the sacrum. That's your SI joint. It's a very interesting joint. It's shaped a bit like a boomerang. It's got a curve. It's a C-shaped or an L-shape to it. And one part of it is... Um, a synovial joint, which means there's a little bit of movement there. The other two-thirds is a fibrous joint, which means there's not much movement there. But on average, this joint only moves about one to two millimeters. That's a tiny, tiny amount. It's like if you're reading a book, it's about the width of a letter T. So that's how much your SI joint actually moves. It's not designed to move a lot. What it's designed to do is simply redistribute stresses through the whole pelvic ring. It's bearing the whole weight. I mean, the whole upper body weight is coming down into the sacrum, which fits a bit like a wedge into the pelvis. And if that stress gets too big, it would break the pelvis bones. There's a little release. There's a little click, and that distributes the stress, and now different parts of the bones are being stressed. That's all we need the movement for. SI joint movement is not designed to get us deeper into a forward fold or into a twist or a back bend. It's simply to maintain stability of the pelvic ring. And as I say, for the vast majority of people, there's very little movement there. It's very rare that you have an instability there. It can happen. Mostly to women who have had a difficult birth, they may have overstressed some of the restraining tissues there. Or if you're in a car accident or something, something really hit your pelvis. Mm -hmm. But most people with daily living, they don't develop SI stability. Over the years and years as we age, it actually gets stiffer and stiffer. And we need to mobilize that area to keep that release function there this is probably an impossible follow-up question for you to answer but uh, maybe you can speak on the law the the <laughs> law of uh maybe an intuitive sense you have around it but because i have heard so frequently that someone so-and-so has you know uh, overstretched sacroiliac joint or an in, in unstable si yeah. joint what percentage of those diagnoses, and this is kind of the, the, the controversy that your book does wade into a little bit, but what percentage of those diagnoses do you think at this point are either inaccurate or just patently incorrect? I don't have the exact percentage, but, I, but it's very, very low. It's like maybe 5% or less. Because what's what's the, 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 mistaking the SI joint for the area around the SI. And this is where our definitions are important. Because again, from a researcher's point of view, the SI joint is simply the joining of the two bones. But a lot of people reach back and they, 
touch the back of the sacrum and say, oh, I've got an SI problem. What they're, they're maybe feeling pain in that area, but that pain is 95% or more often coming from the soft tissues around that area, above that area, not from the joint itself. Mm-hmm. We have fascia there, we have ligaments there, we have joint capsules there, we have a whole bunch of other tissues there, and this is the area that gives rise to the pain and the pathology, not the joint itself. But people call that whole area my SI. Right. So that's so, what you mean by SI pain. Yeah, that's right. That's where the pain is. But it's not coming from the sacroiliac joint. It's coming from other stuff there. Right. So just to clarify, because you said when I asked you what percentage of, of those cases are, are misdiagnosed, uh, you said five percent. But actually, what you meant is probably ninety-five percent are not specifically the exa- the a- the actual joint, as you're saying. It's it's in the the region there, and maybe it's a it's a, a pain that's being attributed to the SI joint, but it's a misattribution. Right. So 5% or less is actually due to an SI joint problem. Yeah. But there's other problems around that area. And a lot of that may be a referral of pain from other areas and because we got a lot of nerves going through there. So definitely the pain is real. Yeah. Now, sometimes a physiotherapist or physical therapist may try to adjust the sacrum and they'll be feeling some landmarks. They think they can actually move the sacrum or move the SI joint. The researchers believe this is not possible at all. Clinicians think it is possible. So we've got a big divide in the community, in the medical community. Uh, researchers, they'll do x-rays and MRI, and they'll put people in and do these manipulations, and they see no movement at all in the SI joint. But the clinicians say, no, I feel it. I can feel it moving. The researchers say, what you're feeling moving is the soft tissues over top. Like if you touch the PSIS and you do some manipulation, well, that's the muscle and that's the fascia over top of the bone moving. It's not the bones moving. You cannot manipulate that joint, hmm. according to the researchers. Clinicians don't all agree with it. Many clinicians do agree with it, by the way. So in a yoga practice, we're not really mobilizing that joint. There is you know, maybe that one, two millimeters of movement. That's not significant in terms of our range of motion of how much I can twist or forward fold. It's important if you're bearing a lot of load if you're carrying you know, 50 pounds in your arms, there's a lot of stress into your SI joint. And that little bit of give is going to help to redistribute that stress. The same thing, by the way, is happening at the front of the pelvis at the uh, pubic symphysis. There's not much movement there, one to two degrees, and it's just to release the stress in the pelvic ring. Um, my follow-up question is a little bit, this is a little bit of a, a circumnavigation or to, to it, but um, I've been listening to uh, a lot of Sam Harris debates recently, and uh, the moderator asked the two Sam and whoever he's debating to steal man their opponent first at the beginning, like clearly lay out what the other person's position is. Right. So I would, I'm going to ask you if you can yeah. steal man the argument of the person that says you don't want to do like a, a rounded forward fold for because of the types of stresses it would place on the SI joint, which could lead to SI joint dysfunction or instability, etc. Can you do that? Um, or is well, it? If they're saying that, they're probably saying it because it may lead to pain in the SI area. Mm-hmm. And if someone has chronic pain in that area, certain movements could make it worse. Particularly, I mean, I, I always have seen it with the, the particularly asymmetric forward folds, like say, Janashirshasana or half butterfly. Like there's, there's, a, there's a, I don't know the precise terminology that they would be happy with, but it's a torquing or a shearing stress on the SI joint that um, they, they 
feel is, is problematic. Yeah, they, they believe that asymmetrical stresses in the SI joint can be a problem. Well, that's true for some people. Maybe less than 1% of 1% of the people in the world, that may be a problem for them. And because it's a problem for some people, they extrapolate it to everyone should not do it. But now we're going back to this binary thing. Just because some people could hurt themselves doing that stress there, nobody should stress that area. Well, if you never stress the SI joint, guess what? It's going to atrophy. All tissues need stress. Yes, you can do too much. But just because you can do too much, don't do too little. It comes back to the discussion, the paper that just came out today from Harvard. Don't baby your joints. Mm -hmm. Don't baby your back. You need to stress these tissues. But the point is, this is a very stiff structure. There's not much movement there anyway. So you don't have to worry about too much. But if you've got pain in the lower back, in the SI area, yeah, let's figure out what's causing that pain. Some movements may make it a problem. It's just not the SI joint that's the problem. There's something else going on there. So let's look at that because I, I'm just thinking of an example where um, someone has pain in that area. They either do a yoga pose or they get an adjustment or a manipulation of some sort. There's a crack or a click, and I know you talk about this in the book. And yeah. when that crack, click, crack occurs, uh, there's an instantaneous reduction in symptomolo symptomology. There's just a release, there's a total relief that comes, and, and there's a, a, right. a, a, either a, a decrease or um, a removal entirely of that discomfort. Um, if it's not the SI, what do you think it might be? Well, it, it possibly could be the SI joint, but it's unlikely. The studies I've looked at say that most clinicians, chiropractors, when they crack somebody, the place of the crack is nowhere near the targeted area. So some say you got a chiropractor who wants to crack your SI and they hear a loud pop. Chances are that's coming from the facet joints of the fifth lumbar in the SI, or the sacrum. Mm -hmm. Top of the sacrum in the, the lumbar, the facets cracked. Or it may have been from the L4, L5. It could be up to 10, 10 centimeters away. That's four inches away. But they hear this loud crack and there's almost a psychological release you know, and I'm, th I'm thinking personally, too, that I remember from years before even my yin yoga days, I would do halasana and Iyengar yoga, you know, the, yeah. long, the long series of inversions at the end of an Iyengar practice. And I would roll out of halasana, and there would be this sort of tectonic shift that yeah. I, I identified as being in my sacrum that felt like this, like, total release, and it was, and it was just a delicious feeling afterwards. Right. But so you, are you suggesting that that's likely more to be located in the facets yeah it's, well in the book i talk about all the different ways cracks can be made it could be friction like if you're about to snap your fingers you know if you just put your thumb and finger together you feel the pressure just before you release that pressure is building up and that can happen between the facets and then when it releases you get a nice click and that pressure is now released and you feel ah good that's usually happening between the facets have got stuck together the pressure is building up and then you get a crack you may get multiple cracks because you have multiple facets so sometimes it could be like a string of firecrackers, snap, 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 snap. Yeah. But we also, in our fascia, so there's many types of fascia, it's like bubble wrap, like the packing material you get from Amazon. But instead of air being in the bubbles, it's water. And sometimes these bubbles pop, and that also causes a sound. Hmm. It could just be the fascia popping. It turns out our muscles also pop. There's different releases that happen throughout our tissues. So it's not just the bones that pop, it's not just the fascia, it's not the muscles. we got noises all over the place. 
even corpses are cracking. Yeah, <laughs> and I just want to add one because it was it made me laugh so hard when I was reading your book. You told the anecdote of a chiropractor or an osteopath adjusting somebody, and I don't yes. know if this this practitioner was doing it consciously or unconsciously, but when they'd adjust from them, they were actually like chomping their teeth against each other. Yes, yes. <laughs> and a, a popping sound, and then the patients felt like, oh, I got a great adjustment, and it was really just yes. the, the, everyone the, wanted to be adjusted by him. I got that story from Leslie Kamenov. <laughs> He was in the clinic where this guy was the cracker, and oh. he, he watched him closely and saw, "Well, oh, that's what he's doing. He just clicks his teeth together whenever he gets this." And the people go, "Ah, oh. yeah, power <laughs> placebo, I guess." Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, so yeah, there, there could be a release of stress in the SI joint, but most likely it's coming from the facet joints. But it could be coming from the fascia. It could be coming from muscles. And you know, when you release the stress, it feels good for a little while. There may be a slight increase in mobility after you cracked a facet, but in half an hour, it's gone back to its normal range of motion. So it's not a permanent increase of range of motion. Mm -hmm. So that's why you get cracked, you feel better, but tomorrow you need to crack it again. Yeah, yeah. I know that one. Um, look, you, we, we've been going through a lot of stuff, and uh, for the listeners, I should just, as a, as a plug for your book, you, you know, I'd say we've probably scratched the surface of about 3 to 4% of the actual content that you have in this book. This book is an absolute treasure trove of so many things. You get into uh, breathing mechanics, you get into nerve, things like nerve flossing that I had sort of flagged as maybe something we would talk about. Um, but there's, there's just so much in this book that it's, 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 it's really worth getting into. Um, as a closing question for you though, I, I did, I, I'm curious because personally I always find myself, my view of things changes and evolves hopefully and, and the practices yeah. I do change and evolve. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak, you know, on a more personal level around things you have changed in your own practice as a result of what you've come to see and understand through your own research and in, in writing these books. Like, are you... The big takeaway I got, Josh, was really from my studying with Stuart McGill. Now, yoga, we, we prize range of motion. We want to increase flexibility. I hadn't really realized the difference between flexibility and mobility, you know, range of motion versus ease of motion. But it was McGill that really brought me back to stability, you know, is more important than mobility when it comes to the spine. Now, I'm a golfer. I'm just getting back into my golf game. I kind of gave it up for the last 15 years. And I am doing a lot more core work now to build stability in my spine than I ever did before in my yoga practice. Mm. Don't have to get bigger and bigger twists. And I used to think, you know, when I first started teaching yoga 20 years ago, I had a yoga for golfers course, and it was all about increasing range of motion to have a deeper twist. And now I realize that's flawed. You want, not some, you want some ability to twist, but it's the stiffness in the twist and the recoil, the elasticity that you're building up that's going to help you snap back, that's going to help you hit the ball further. So I'm focusing much more now on stiffening my core. I want to keep the range of motion I've got, but I'm not trying to get more. Mm -hmm. you know, stability first, mobility second. And what are you doing to, to, to strengthen your core? Well, there's, there's three exercises we call the big three from McGill, which I talk about in my book. One is plank, plank on elbows or a side plank. The second is the balancing cat. And the third is a mini curl-up. A traditional sit-up is not a very good exercise. So his little mini curl-up is where you put the hands behind your lower back to maintain the normal curve the neutral curve in the spine, and just lift your chest one inch off the floor. The head will come up one inch as well. Holding that, you'll feel that it works all your core muscles. So these three exercises, done repeatedly, 
builds endurance. That's the other thing that McGill's studies have shown that strength is good for the back, but more important is endurance. Endurance is more protective against back injury than strength. And endurance comes from not being stronger and stronger, but by doing it more and more. So it's kind of in like attitudes. You don't want to have the strongest stomach muscles possible. You want to exercise, rest, exercise, rest, exercise, rest, keep coming back. Yeah, I was going to say, minutes. a lot of these terms, you know, when you hear them, they, 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 they sound sort of, like they, 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 they give you an immediate sense of what they mean until you try to actually define them. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, endurance. Yeah, I know what that is. But then I was thinking, well, okay, well, Bernie, what, what do you mean specifically when you say endurance? Do you mean like ability to withstand you know, a force or a stress or a load of work for a longer period of time. Is, right. Is that kind it's of... Repetitiveness. Because, like, imagine you're doing planks. And I saw this one Marine guy who set a record. He held plank for, like, five hours or something like that. That takes a lot of strength. But for our purposes, what McGill suggests is you do a declining... You do three sets of, say, plank. The first time you hold for maybe 40 seconds. Second time, maybe 30 seconds. Third time, 20 seconds. You hold less each time because as you get tired, you lose technique. Mm -hmm. So when you lose technique, that injuries are going to happen. You want the spine to be neutral. And if you get tired, you're going to start to sway your back. And that's not neutral anymore. So you do that 40, 30, 20 seconds. Take a bit more rest and then do it again. And then do it again. That's going to build endurance rather than doing it for five minutes, four minutes, three minutes. One time only. That's going to build strength. So the spine does better when you build endurance it's more protective than just building ultimate strength. Got it. And because I have you here, I want to bend your ear a little bit longer. Do you do this kind of strengthening stuff within your yin practice, or is there a separate uh, disconnected practice? It's it's separate. Separate, yeah. 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 I do a time when I'm doing yin. I do a time when I'm doing yang. And a lot of my, my heart endurance stuff is running sprints or climbing stairs. But my stomach endurance stuff are McGill's big three. And just because you, you've, you've talked about McGill, I have a personal question. Um, I, I think at the end of, middle of last year, I started doing my own form of what I would call a kind of endurance strength training with um, a, a practice called rucking, which is spelled R-U-C-K, where you take a, a rucksack, load right. it with, with a lot of weight, and go walk for an hour or two. Yeah. Um, and I know this is used in the military and... Uh, Somewhere on one of the rucking blogs, McGill was quoted as talking about how it's increasing one's stone, I think is what it is, like sort of like, I think it was, he was referring to it as a, a, a kind of spinal stability. Um, and I don't know if, you, just curious if, you, if you'd heard him talk anything about that. Yeah, he does say for people with low back problems, he's got a book called Low Back Disorders and he talks about this particular thing. You want to keep the lumbar curve as neutral as possible. And so having a backpack with a bit of weight on it actually keeps the spine very neutral. And then when you walk, you're stressing that neutral spine. So it is a recommendation that he often gives is to walk is great. Walking is great for the bones and for the spine, but do it with a bit of a backpack and it's going to keep your posture very good. It's going to keep the shoulders back and keep more of a curve in the lower back. And uh, he also says, walk briskly. Don't dawdle. You know, swing your arms. Yeah, that's also very, very therapeutic for the back. Mm. Yeah, no, I found it to be uh, not, not just physically good, but there's a kind of a mental 
for lack of a better term, mental toughness that comes from doing yes. this kind of thing that um, I have found very, very helpful. Um, but right. but, it's, but it has been informed too by, by what you've been talking about in your book and emphasizing stability because that was not what I was at all seeking in my yoga practice um, right. for, for quite a long time. Listen, I, um, I want to be uh, <laughs> suitably grateful for the time that you've given here. Uh, this has been a fantastic opportunity to talk to you um, and I hope that the points that we bring out will be of benefit to yin teachers, yoga teachers in general um, and anybody that has a spine. Um, <laughs> is the book out in, in, in stores now? It is available. It's being shipped to Amazon right now. It's, uh, Amazon says it will be available November 1st, but hopefully it'll be, uh, you can get fulfilled before then. So it's in selected stores now, but it's, it's getting out there more and more. Yeah. And Josh, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk about it. As you say, there's a, a host of things we could go into more detail, like the whole sacral iliac area. We didn't even talk about nutation and counter-nutation. Yeah. So much discussion about that in the yoga world. Uh, we get to that more in the book. And uh, holding about the neck and headstand, shoulder stands, uh, and the breath. Uh, just a quick thing on there. I didn't realize the shape of our rib cage and the orientation of the, uh, to vertical or horizontal of the ribs affect whether we're belly breathers or chest breathers. And I had no realization that there's a difference between men and women, and, or, and again, averages are such that there is no typical man or woman. So there's just so many fascinating things where human variation has a big impact in the way our yoga is going to be experienced. Yeah, and are on the breath too. I had no idea that as we age, the rib cage sort of, I think if I got it right from your book, starts to be set more in a, in a position of inhalation. Like yeah, the, elevate. The, the, the ribs elevate, and that yeah. um, to mitigate that and increase, I think what you're talking about is vital capacity. We want to really emphasize full exhalations. I mean, there, yeah. there is just like it. And actually, maybe before we end, I should just say that, um, so this book, my sense as a reader, and, and I want you to get your opinion as the writer, um, my sense is you can go through this book cover to cover, and it might take you it's probably a month or two at least <laughs> to go yeah. through it. You probably won't absorb, the, the reader won't absorb everything, and I tell my students, I say, do not worry, you're not going to be able to absorb this book cover to cover. This is right. something to return to again and again, but there's... There's these sidebars of points for teachers, points of controversy. Um, is there another one that I'm forgetting? Like things that are, it's important. You have an idea of like, this isn't really yeah, important. Like it's complicated. It's important. Notes to teachers. Yeah. And these are sort of like distilled, crystallized little topics that really can be read standalone. Yeah. I would say the first time you get the book, just go through and read the pictures and the, the it's important stuff. And then if you're a teacher, you can also read the notes to teacher. Yeah. The other, the complicated stuff and the rest of it, it's, it's a resource. So if you wanted to know what are the stomach muscles or what are the erector spinae, you can go and read that section. But you don't really need to read the whole thing. So just first time through, read the pictures and the, it's important and you'll have gotten the book. Well, you know, then the, the follow-up point to that would be, um, you know, let's say you're you're teaching. Someone wants to a teacher wants to share something they picked up in the it's important section or the point to teacher, and then they get someone that pushes back, and says, right. oh, no, 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 no. Well, <laughs> you've done all the heavy lifting in this book. The teacher just needs to go back and refer to the the, the devilish details there, right. um, and there's more than enough evidence. As I said, uh, I mean. I don't know how you found the time or find the time to continue to do these because, the, I mean, there's so much research that goes into this. It's, I, I can see if you had a team of maybe 20 
authors working with you, I could see <laughs> this would seem less miraculous. But having come out of one person and one mind is uh, truly, truly a, 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 um, a, an achievement. And I just want to say, if I were wearing one, hats off to you and thank you. Well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate that. Yeah. So that concludes the current series with Bernie Clark. If you missed any of the previous episodes with Bernie or my conversation with him on part one of his trilogy, Your Body, Your Yoga, please check out those in the archive of my podcast at www.joshsummers.net forward slash podcast. That's www.joshsummers.net forward slash podcast. Bernie's new book, Your Spine, Your Yoga, the one we spoke about today, is now available and there's a link for you in the show notes. Again, his books are essential fixtures in every smart yoga teacher's library. Going forward, I have a few conversations with new guests coming soon, but at the moment I'm unsure of which order to deliver those episodes to you. So for now, I'll leave you in a bit of suspense. But if you're interested in training or studying in yin yoga with me, please check out yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. Thanks again so much for listening today, and I'll see you in the next episode.